Hey, it's Wednesday 19th. Wednesday the 19th. It's Wednesday, August 19th. I couldn't have botched that more if I tried. Uh, this is the Promotional Malpractice Live Chat. My name is Luke Thomas. And uh, while Ben Folks might have a pile of trash neck, I have a pile of trash lower back that hurts so bad that I can barely speak to you. But I'm going to find some way to soldier through because that's just kind of the guy I am, I guess. Whatever that means. Uh, all right, so today on the live chat... Um, Let's see. There's no real big stuff going on day to day. There's no scandal. There's no impending huge fight like right around the corner. But there is things to get to. UFC 194 continues to be built out like a supercard. It's four months away. We'll see if it actually ends up being what we hope it is and what it's being built to be. But it could be great. Uh, we also have. Um, there is an event this weekend. It's not good, but there are some good fights on it, and they deserve to be discussed. UFC Fight Night 74 in Saskatoon. Couldn't, I couldn't find Saskatoon. I won the geography bee in seventh grade, and I still couldn't find Saskatoon on the map if I was on a dare. Um, but be that as it may, they're going to go there. They're going to have that show there. should be wild and interesting, I suppose. Um, so there's that. And then there's news and notes from across the sport if you want to get to. Lots of grappling stuff that happened. EBI, Metamorphos Underground. ADCC is not this weekend, but the following. Um, quick note about programming, real quickly. I'm going to be on vacation the first two weeks of September. So the first two weeks of September, there's going to be no Monday morning analyst, no live chat, no nothing. So um, if you hate me, you probably think that's great. If you like this content, then uh, I'm afraid there's nothing I can do. I'm going to check out completely. I'm going to leave the country. I'm going to be impossible to reach, maybe. But be that as it may, just as a programming note, so there's going to be this live chat, Monday morning analyst next Monday, one more live chat, and then it's off for almost three weeks. So you get the idea. Okay, with that being said, if you're watching this live, give this video a thumbs up. Uh, share it on Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram. My back is killing me on uh, Instagram, um, on everything you can do, blah, 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 blah. Just get up there and share it, whether you're watching it live or after the fact. Uh, today's show, of course, not officially, but you know, in my heart, it's brought to you by... Diet Mountain Dew. Uh, I tried to find one that was like a hipster soda, but I couldn't find anyone that I could even, like, the idea of even swallowing seemed possible. You know, orange cream diet, caffeine-free, some brand I never heard of. Yeah, no thanks. I'd rather just swim in raw sewage. There we are. All right. With that out of the way, for, you know, not a lot going on in the sport, there are a ton of questions. So I will try to get to these as rapidly as possible. If you're asking what's wrong with my back, I've had a knot on the back of it the size of an acorn. And I've been foam rolling it and getting, like, deep tissue massages to get this joker out. Anyway, it's been manageable. Um, but it still hurt. Like, I have to do excessive warm-ups and all kinds of planking and, you know, just all kinds of stuff to get it to, to not be so bad. And... Um, and then on Monday, I did, like, aggressive deadlifting, um, which just has turned it into, apparently, I mean, it's, it was, it's, it's like, it's like, it's not as big as my fist, of course, that's ridiculous, but, like, two knuckles, I mean, it's huge, I'm having to roll it out constantly, so, like, it's just a muscle that's just squeezing in the inside of my back, and it just makes sitting and moving, sitting still kind of hard, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna find a way to get through this, because uh, that's the kind of guy I am, all right. Lesson to the to the wise: Don't do deadlifts if you're uh, if you're 36. 
Uh, well, that's not true because I did deadlifts. I've been doing deadlifts for a few months now, but I used to lift weights heavily in my twenties, heavily all the time, like every five, five, six days a week. And then I quit after I tore my labor and doing it, and I was just like, I can't deal with that anymore. But it turns out I kind of miss it. I kind of like it, and so I went back to it. But you know, I'm not 22 anymore, so. Turns out you can't go that hard when you're 36. All right. The Rumble Gym Incident. Reports are surfacing regarding an incident involving Rumble and a female doing yoga near where he was weightlifting. Well, there are no reports. It's just what he put out on Facebook. Um, Rumble put up something on Instagram and Facebook and then took it down. Do you know anything more about this? I do not know anything more about this. Do you have any opinion or, or comment? Well, look, without really knowing what happened, I don't know to say too much. Um, so I'm not going to comment on the content about what he's talking about because then I'd be pulling a Chris Carter and I don't want to do that. But what I can comment on is what he posted, right? So this is the thing I can witness and observe and make a judgment about. And that to me seemed deeply misguided. I mean, look, he, he may, whatever the nature of his dispute with this woman, it may be, uh, totally justified one way or the other, but, um, you know, when you've had some, when you've had domestic violence past, which he has, um, that's probably not the best idea to go out and write something where you're barking orders at some nameless woman. I don't understand why it was even necessary to go out and write something on Facebook. Like if this person had come out and said something and then it had taken off and gained steam as an, as a story, say something like the Travis Brown allegations where this woman is claiming that he had abused her and posted these pictures. And then the story sort of went viral and everyone picked up on it. Okay, then, you know, I can understand why he might be tempted to make a response, like to, to you know, dispel rumors or put on his side of the story or something like that. But to my knowledge, nothing ever was public, whoever this person was. And, you know, when you have a past like that and you're writing stuff like, you know, you're commanding all, and issuing ultimatums to a, some faceless, seemingly irrelevant woman, uh, irrelevant in the sense of, you know, completely powerless. <clears throat> Probably not the best idea. Probably not the best idea. Just my two cents. That is, That was not the um, optimum way to handle that. Uh, should the UFC pull him from the card pending an investigation like they did with Brown? I don't think having a dispute at a gym merits that. No. Um, also, unless someone comes forward alleging that there was some sort of illegal act made against them, you know, being a rude and horrible to another person isn't necessarily, um, you know, a fireable or suspending offense. But, you know, if it's more serious than that, then, of course, you know, whatever. But let's just see if this person says anything. It seems to me like it was just a moronic dispute that somehow spilled over into the public because he spilled it into the public, which, again, it's just like from a PR standpoint, especially if you haven't even done anything actually all that reprehensible, not the best idea. Uh, the four horsemen of 185, Chris Weidman, Luke Rockhold, Jacare, and Yoel Romero, have dominated their recent competition and established themselves as the very best fighters in the middleweight division. I think it's somewhat rare in any weight class to have four elite high-level competitors that could each potentially hold a championship belt. 
Wyman versus Rockhold and Jack Ritter versus Romero have recently been added to the main card of UFC 194. And the winner of each match will certainly face one another in a title fight. Give us your breakdown of the two title bouts and predict which horseman uh, is likely to reign supreme. Well, I'm not going to do a bunch of breakdowns now because there's no point this far out. Um, we'll see if the fights are even going to be made. But I would just comment on one thing you, you you sort of note here that it's very, very rare to have four people at the top of their division who could reasonably be expected to hold the title. Uh, I think, you know, some with greater chance than others. Um, but you you're right. Uh, this reminds me of the heyday of light heavyweight. And you can say what you want, but there was a moment in time where you could have, you had like Tito, Chuck, Randy, maybe Vitor at the top, kind of. And again, that's not quite exactly like this, but it's pretty close. Where you had all those guys and you thought, you know, one was champion and the other, other ones could be um, in the right circumstances. So that was that's, that's sort of the light heavyweight that we look back on very fondly, both for the star power of those guys and then also for... Um, you know, just what it offered in terms of competitive um, matchups. And again, that was also the time when Pride had a bunch of strong light heavyweights as well, with Shogun and, and Rampage and everything, and Vanderlei Silva and so forth. So so that was a time when light heavyweight was really kind of spectacular. And now it's not quite what it once was, but um, middleweight to some extent has made up that ground. Let's see. Fights announced recently. Who you got? So I'm going to answer this, but I'm going to answer it with the caveat that I reserve the right to change my opinion on a later date. These are just immediate reactions. These are not hardcore breakdown, stand my name on it. Uh, Jacare versus Romero. Man, I really don't know. Um, I'll say Jacare. Benavidez versus Bagotinov. I'll take Benavidez. Number Yunus versus Hill. Number Yunus. Hunt versus Bigfoot 2. I will say Hunt. Teixeira versus Cummins. I will say Teixeira. Maldonado versus Lawler. Um, maybe Lawler. Cejudo versus Formiga. I will probably take Formiga. Martins versus Makachev. Man, that's a tough fight. Mm. Um, maybe Makachev. Uh, Pitbull versus Strauss 3. I'll take Pitbull. Even though he was on his way to losing that second one before he pulled it out. And then Brooks versus Held, I will take Brooks. But I'll tell you, uh, that Gary Tonin seminar I went to a couple of weeks ago, he was saying that, you know, Marching Held, because remember, he went up against Marching Held in a grappling contest at Polaris. And uh, Gary Tonin won it. And he won it, you know, I won't say very easily, but it was basically in command the entire time. But he was saying that uh, if you look at the guys in all of grappling, who transition between toe hold and heel hook back and forth and then knee bar, so that series there, you ever seen like the guys do like armbar triangle omoplata series? You know, it's kind of like that. He said that 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 Marching Hell had some of the best transitions he'd ever seen. Um, okay, and then someone says also Miocic versus Rothwell. I like Miocic, but you know, Big Ben's been out there hurting people. Okay, UFC 194. This card is shaping up to be probably one of the biggest in UFC history, as you have McGregor Aldo, and then probably the best fight that could be made in MMA. At the moment with Rockhold versus Wyman, basically from the three fights already announced who you got winning and how. Again, I'm going to save that for a little bit, but I want to look up something here real quickly if I can. Um, you know, whether it's because they're trying to get as much money out of pay-per-view as possible, whether it's a shift in strategy about how to build cards, whether it's a reaction to um, injuries, 
whether it's a reaction to the 40% decline in, um, I think it was revenue last year for Zufa. Remember that Bloomberg article? 40% decline. You know, um, whatever. I'm just not going to get into it. But okay. Uh, and I remember, and I, and I had written, like, you know, this was very different than the UFC of uh, 2012, I think. Um, and I'm going to pull up some cards here that I think prove that. So, yeah, I mean, look, this isn't exactly a terrible card, but like consider the pay-per-view card for 143. This was in 2012. Condit versus Diaz. Okay, that's good. Verdum versus Nelson. It's okay. I mean, it's a good fight, but it's not nothing you know, hugely special. Koscheck versus Pierce. Uh, Burrell versus Jorgensen that ended up being a bit of a dub, but that's a good fight. And then Herman versus Clifford Starks. That was your main card for pay-per-view. Um, then you have 144, Edgar versus Henderson. This one's a little bit better. This was Henderson. This was the one in Japan. Henderson versus Edgar, good. Bader versus Jackson, okay. Hunt, Congo, Shields, Akiyama, Boch, Okami, Hiyoki, Palaszewski, and Pedestals on. That actually wound up being a, a very good card. Actually did pretty good on pay-per-view as a consequence. Uh, give me just one second here. I want to pull up another pay-per-view if I can. Here's 145. Ready? 145 was Jones versus Evans. That was your top of the food chain. Okay, great. But then watch that after this. McDonald, Shea Mills, Rothwell, Schaub, McDonald, Torres, Eddie again versus Mark Hominick, and then Bocek versus John Alessio. That was your pay-per-view card. Pay-per-view card for that one. Then you have, uh, let's see. Man, a bunch of these. Here's UFC 146. Was this the all-heavyweight card? Yes. That's a little more fun. Um, what about 147? Let's see. I'll pull one more. 147. And keep them straight, gang. This was in Brazil. Here's 147. This is on pay-per-view. Franklin versus Silva. Okay, Vanderlei Silva. Cesar Ferreira versus Sergio Moraes. Uh, Honey Jason versus Godofredo Pepe. Fabricio Verdun versus Mike Russo. And then Hakran Diaz versus Yuri Alcantara. Now, certainly we went with uh, Ronda Rousey and a seven-fight card that had, uh, you know, not, not necessarily the world's greatest card, but it had some notable names, had some bigger figures. I guess what I'm just pointing out was there was a period in time, and that did 140,000 buys. I'm surprised it did even that much. Uh, there was a period in time in 2012 and 2013, this is when I felt MMA, at least in North America, went like this a little bit, um, which was referenced in my interview with Scott Coker, where there just was not a tremendous effort made toward doubling down and repurposing, uh, you know, uh, but there was a time when I feel like the UFC was just coasting on their, on their name brand. They were trying to expand. They were trying to do all these shows to meet all these partners, to get out, secure all these TV rights deals and, and to grow the sport internationally. And I think some of that was really well-intentioned. I really do. But I think it was too much all at once. And this was this period where it was happening where they hadn't quite settled into it. And you were having these pay-per-view shows where, you know, 151 was here, the one that got canceled. Do folks remember that card? Just let me pull up the card on this one because it never was supposed to happen. This was Jones Henderson, right? This was also, this was, uh, this was supposed to take place September, I believe, of 2012. Here was the card for that. John Jones versus Dan Henderson. Okay, great. After that, Jake Ellenberger versus Jay Huron. 
Dennis Seaver versus Eddie again. Dennis Holman versus Chago Tavares and John Lineker versus Yasuhiro Uru Shatani. Okay, that was your main card. So my point being was there just wasn't a lot of effort to make pay-per-view special or like there the, to really work on this tiered system where the Fight Night shows had a certain feel, the Fox shows had a certain feel, and then the pay-per-view had a really different kind of feel. They didn't have at the time they didn't have, and to to an extent they still don't, but at a time at this time they definitely didn't have the roster. They definitely didn't have the ability to meet all these demands. And um, anyway, long story short. I don't know what's going to happen with this 194 card in the end, but it deserves to be noted that they're putting two championship fights, one of which was alluded to, you know, one of the biggest fight arguably you can make in MMA right now outside of Cyborg Rousey, maybe, maybe bigger. The other one is the most competitive middleweight fight in, you know, geez, a generation of MMA fans, um, maybe ever, right? And then, and then you have below that, the sort of number one contender, the winner that gets the, the winner of the, of the co-main event, like, and that one is highly anticipated and, and features, you know, a division when it's never been hotter. So there's like so many really important aspects to understanding and appreciating what has happened here. Like, I think after this decline in North America and to an extent, Brazil's feeling it now too. Um, there's this, per, there's this realization that a, there is still money in pay-per-view, but to get it, you got to really make it special. You got to really try, you got to really go out there and put your best foot forward and you have to have the roster space to do that. You have to have, you know, a little bit of luck with the injuries as well. So I guess I'm just pointing out that this is such a departure from how the, the general malaise of 2012 and 2013 in terms of pay-per-view. It just feels so much more inspired, so much like they're trying harder um, to make pay-per-view count when it still can count, even if it wasn't, it's not quite the, you know, the golden, the gold rush of, of 2008 and nine. Uh, Johnson versus Dodson 2. What does the UFC have to do to hype this fight? It looks as as if zero effort is being put on by Mighty Mouse in the UFC for that matter. At least Dodson is showing some life and effort. It seems like it will be a great fight. It'd be nice to see more build up. I don't know how many times I've told you all this. I mean, could they be doing more? Sure. You know, could they get out there and make a whole TV series about Mighty Mouse? They could do all that. They could spend that money. Um, they could buy a bunch of ads. They could put up a bunch of billboards. And, they, and to some extent, they will, of course. They will promote this. It's in their interest to promote this. The, that's where an interest aligns between the fighters and the promoter. But, um, you know, some guys are just going to be that way and some guys are just not. You know, it takes a long time to promote fighters. We've, all, we've often discovered this. Like, to get someone to turn a corner where they're a promotional powerhouse. <coughs> Pardon me. It can be a very laborious process. It can be a very lengthy process. Um, we always point to Anderson Silva as a case in point. Also requires upon them, you know, significant success, which Johnson has enjoyed, but you get the idea. Um, look, guys, some guys just have it, some guys don't. Um, and you can lament the fact that Mighty Mouse is not one of those guys. I'd be okay with that. You can say that... Um, this is some sort of indictment on the fan base itself. Okay, fine. Whatever you want to say, it's fine. But people take to certain people and they don't take to others. And there is some you can do to affect that. Maybe there's even a lot you can do to affect that. But we're this far into his career. We're this far into his championship run. Um, and his progress has been, you know, seems to me in terms of a promotional entity, flatlined, not even incremental. And again, whatever you want to attribute that to, I will entertain just about any theory to explain it, both putting the blame on him and the blame on others. 
but I really fundamentally just don't think there's a lot you can do to actually change it. I really don't. I have a hard time believing that. He kind of is what it is for, for the time being, unless structurally things change around him, like he actually gets a real rival. Um, Dotson's about the closest thing he has to a rival, but I still don't view him as a guy who can – yeah, I mean, yes, yeah, I think he can beat – I think he can beat Demetrius Johnson, but I don't like – I don't look at it like, wow, like he's a serious challenge in that way. I, I, I see it as like if he gets really lucky, you know, he, he could spark him. But everyone talks about like, why isn't there more effort put, being put into Johnson? Well, because I, I just feel like they probably realize we have more sure things we can dump our interest into and dump our resources into and get a surefire result as a consequence rather than this speculative thing that we look at anecdotal evidence about web traffic and maybe kit sales and whatever the case may be and realize there's just not a lot of interest behind this. And so folks, the fan response is, well, there's not a lot of interest. Isn't that your cause to then create interest? I think what most promoters would say is to some extent, yes, but what most promoters want to do is take the easy way out. And I don't mean that as an indictment. I just mean what makes more sense to take something that's naturally got a lot of enthusiasm and do everything you can to build on that or take something where there's not a lot of natural enthusiasm and bang your head against the wall, trying to convince people otherwise. It's a pretty simple test case. The best thing to do is yes, you have to convince people. Yes. You have to give people exposure. Yes. You have to try and answer questions and, and assuage doubts and all those kinds of things. But, but really what it's about is, is, you know, flying the kite when the wind is strongest. It's about sailing the boat when the current takes you the fastest. That's kind of what it's about. Um, and you got to know how to sail and all the whatever, however, so we want to make the metaphor. But that's that's the core of it, of everything. And so I think a lot of people have to see like, well, there's so much lacking here. Isn't that lack a directive upon the promoter to fill in that hole? To an extent, but not very much. Um. Someone says, we haven't gotten your take on the main event this weekend. How do you see Holloway versus Oliveira going? I see Holloway styling on him. I do. Um, I like Charles Oliveira. He's one of these guys. I've been working on this article uh, where Oliveira plays a big part. It's not about him, and I don't want to spoil it. But I've been doing a lot of thinking about the evolution of Oliveira's game. Um, it's a lot better than it used to be, but boy, I have a hard time seeing how he gets past Holloway. Holloway, you know, can cut angles, can dictate range, has phenomenal takedown defense. Um, you know, can't match Oliveira move for move on the ground, but probably won't need to, and certainly can hold his own, um, in MMA contexts anyway. So there's just not a lot of ways I see this going poorly for Holloway. Certainly he can get, you know, cracked. And Oliveira set the guillotine on Lance by cracking him, yanking the head down, and then jumping guillotine while twisting in a, in a I think he was twisting counterclockwise. You guys remember that for the Monday Morning Analyst. But that I just don't see Holloway getting caught like that not anymore. I mean, remember on this chat, said it a long time ago, and I think some of you agreed, we may end up looking back, Aldo notwithstanding, we may look back and say, you know, the better parts of McGregor's resume is when he beat Max Holloway. With a torn ACL, no less. The rest of that card, though, is... Yeah. 
that's the sort of like people ask me like, oh, there's you know, uh, what did somebody ask me? I forget exactly the nature of the question, but this is like this is only MMA that I watch because I am required. Were I not required, I would watch the main event and one or two other fights, and that's it. Because just you know. Luke, which fighter's name spelling mistakes annoy you the most? Connor with an uh, extra N and an E. Ronda with the H. The Ronda with the H kills me. Robbie Lawlor, like Tom Lawler. Josh Thompson with a P. And any others that I didn't think of. Uh, Giblert. Um, who gets his name spelled? I mean, I don't know if there's anyone else that gets their name spelled so wrong so frequently. But the Ronda with the H. If you ask any question about Rousey and you put an H in Ronda, it doesn't get answered on this chat. Just period. Just does not happen. Uh, okay, Anderson versus Chael. It's a big fight the UFC could make money off of, and I think folks would buy into it. Do you think it might happen, as crazy and wrong as it may seem? Um, there, I, I would find the chances of that happening like less than Pendred versus CM Punk, which is all, also has no chance of happening, at least not anytime soon. Yeah, I, I, Chael would have to get a license again. And I just don't think, it, I, you know, he came very close the first time, not very close the second time. With this amount of time off, I don't think anyone would think he had any chance at all. You might be able to make a little bit off of it because they have names, but this to me seems like the most cynical, non-inspired way to use someone like Anderson, who's had such a distinguished career up to this point that I, I would have a hard time seeing the UFC go along with that. They don't they don't really typically make fights like that. You're all still hanging on to these fantasies about Pendred and CM Punk? <laughs> it's crazy. Let me just say one thing about that they, that y'all that no one has asked. You know what's funny about this is like I'm not I'm not mad about Brooks Punk, whatever you want to call him. I'm really not mad about it. I'm, before I was just like, what is UFC doing? They're going to do what they're going to do. You just got to learn to live with it on some capacity. And, you know, it's their business and they're going to reveal to you what it is. I can want it to be something else. But, and, you know, you have a right, you, me, everyone has a right as a consumer to push back and say, these are things I'm comfortable with. These are things are not. But ultimately, it's their decision to take that feedback and make the kind of product that they want with their own vision. Right. And, and, and to, I think, you know, a very large extent, that's exactly what's happened. Barbus is here. Barbus got a bath the other day. Um, but was, what's what's interesting to me about watching the reaction to this Pendred stuff is people are getting in, in it like, you know, well, Pendred may have said that he was happy about, um, one second. Pendred may have said that he was happy about this guy coming over and what he could do for the sport and all these other things, you know, and. Um, I don't know why he can't keep it that way. And what does it matter to Pendred if this guy's here or not? And blah, blah, blah. To me, it's like, look, if you, I, I'm at the point now where I just don't care if, here's what I'm trying to say. Cause I'm, I'm, I'm stumbling with my words here. If you want a free ride to the top, which is essentially what punk has gotten, right? A total free ride to the top. I mean, there are gyms across the world with guys slaving away, eating ramen noodles and washing the mats and sleeping in the gym who are hoping for the shot to get 
a fight at a show two or three steps below UFC who could probably wipe the floor with him. Uh, you know, you, you got to skip all that. You got to skip all that. And that's cool because you have other value you bring. It's America, right? You should, if someone wants to pay you the money and they can make it work and the fans won't rebel, your consumers won't, you know, walk away in droves. You're going to, you're, you're going to be able to get away with it. And it's your product to do what you want with. Okay. I'm cool with that. Like everyone's okay with it. Like go chase your dreams. That's fine. But if people like Pendred push back on you, you know, I, I'm not saying you have to take it, but like, I, I wouldn't tell Pendred to stop. I would never tell him to stop. Like, you don't get to skip all that and then think everyone has to be nice to you on the other end. They are under no obligation to do so. They're under no obligation to honor your vision and your dream and your experience and your background. Nothing. You don't, on the one hand, say, I get to skip everything that everyone else has to go through from a meritocracy standpoint and a sacrifice standpoint. And then also expect that no one will call you on it. They're all going to call you on it. So to me, it's like, should he be fast-tracked to the top? Hey, UFC has decided it's okay. I think a large portion of the consumer fan base is okay with it. Uh, Punk himself is okay with it. Like, everyone is on board in that way. That does not mean you are then also removed from everyone else who didn't have that opportunity insulting you and throwing jabs at you, metaphorically anyway. And and dump it on you like that to me seems totally fair game totally fair game you want to skip everything that's cool no such thing as a free lunch so i mean i'm not saying that i agree with all his criticisms or that i would make them personally or that i think they're all you know hilarious i'm not saying any of that not, not even weighing in on the content of it exactly just the act of it some people were like who's pedred to you know mind your own business no 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 these guys have every right to say something about it. Every single right. And you can have a dual identity about it. You can say, hey, this guy's good for business. Um, glad he's here. He'll help sell pay-per-views, bring attention to the rest of us. And then also say, but I still think it's a little bit BS that you got to do all that, and I'm going to make a note of it. Um, in the end, all press is sort of good press, I think, in this particular situation. So to me, it's just kind of funny how some of that's played out. Like, oh, I, you know. I should be able to pursue my dreams because there's some nobility in that. Yeah, there is some nobility in that, but you got to do it. <laughs> I mean, there's a, there's a finite number of places and you got one. And, um, you know, I can see why everyone else might have an issue with it. And if you want to skip to the front of the line via an abnormal process, then you need to be prepared to take an abnormal amount of pushback too. Uh, Joe Rogan and Jeff Nowitzki, only a few days after complaining about MMA media, um, listening to his podcast for stories, Rogan interviewed Jeff Nowitzki. Well, whatever, he can, he can have who he wants. The point I want to talk to you about is when Nowitzki said that UFC will hold samples for years to test in the future with tests that haven't been developed yet. What consequence will this have? A competitor could get popped five to ten years later. If they've been clean since, how would they even deal with that? What if it was the current champ? In terms of those procedures, I don't really know what they would do, but I think here's what they're what they're driving at. So the guys who are really good at stuff, um, the guys who have a lot more money, they can buy designer steroids and or you know some version of a PED to just beat every test, the, the CIR test, the whatever you, you name it, they can beat them, right? And so the idea though is that if you have a designer steroid, like only one lab is making this for an X amount of athletes that's beating all these tests. 
Um, the idea is that if you hold the sample and you preserve it, and then you finally, in let's say five years, develop a test to test that thing, which was beating the older tests, then you can go back and you can say, well, look, during this, you tested positive for this. Uh, we may not have been able to catch you at that time, but we can catch you now. In terms of what they'll do, no contests, punishments, I don't know. Um, we'll have to see how that plays out. But that's sort of what they're driving at there and say, look, we can't catch you now. But if we can catch you later, we can still make it count. Uh, and they're going to try doing that. So good job to the fighters in, uh, in, in not pushing back on any of this stuff. Now your blood samples get to be held for however long. Did y'all see that article by, uh, what was the name of the site? I'm looking into it now. Halfguarded.com. The article is called, it was written on my birthday. The article is called, The New UFC PED Policy Just Ended Everyone's Career. It's at halfguarded.com. I can't recommend it enough, partly because I need to get some conversations going with um, um, Zufa about it. But the guy goes through this anti-PED policy, and once again, everyone like, what's the problem with testing cheaters? Well, just like the Reebok thing was rushed, just like Fight Pass was rushed, this was rushed too. Hard to make a real anti-doping policy without involving fighters, but that's one issue. But it's hard to do one anyway, irrespective of fighter involvement in six months. It's just very, very difficult to do. So turns out that there's language in the new PED policy, which portion of it I have to go back and look, but um, the language reads like, now we need clarification from them, from Zufa, but the language reads like if, let's say, um, you're a UFC fighter, we're in the same camp, I'm clean, you tested positive for something. You're serving suspension. If you train with me at my camp while I'm preparing for a fight, remember, I've done nothing wrong, tested nothing, never took a supplement in my life, you know, just Advil and water, that's it. But if I train with you, I can be suspended as well, right? Now think about that. Think about what if that's true, think about what that will do to the sport. And that's just one of a few things he points out, by the way. There's actually a lot in there. So I know everyone was all gung-ho because they're like ISIS, and they just can't wait to see these beheadings. But uh, turns out when you actually want to do things right, you got to do them slowly, and you got to do them with a little bit of oversight, and you got to do them with a little bit of, um, you know, revision and editing. Trying to do it after the fact makes makes revising and editing these things much more difficult. Um, anyway, we'll get some answers to that. Hopefully it's not true, but the language reads pretty clearly in one direction. So we'll see what they say about it. Uh, Fedor Sakuraba and Frank Shamrock at the Bellator Fan Fest. Is there anything more than just appearances we could read into this? For example, Cooker said, we haven't had any talks with Fedor and his people, but do you think they might have the UFC thinking? We know Bellator can do some unexpected things sometimes. Is there anything you refuse to believe involving the three fighters mentioned and the promotion? Well, um, I can tell you that when I went to the uh, Kimbo and Shamrock show, they were not a big part of anything that we saw. Like, I think it was Tito, Liam McGeary, Fedor, Big John, maybe someone else, maybe Frank Shamrock. I'm not sure. They did a they did a Bellator meet and greet. Okay, well, or not Bellator. The um, well, it was a Bellator meet and greet, but it was at uh, Dave and Buster's. All right. Well, the Dave and Buster's was like an hour from downtown. We didn't even go because we, were, we weren't sure we were going to get out there in time. And it was a lot, a lot of other complicating factors. So like, we didn't even go. Um, 
And then on fight night, they were certainly, you know, Lee McGeary was sitting in front of me and Fedor was sort of off to the right. And uh, I interviewed Tito, whatever. You guys all saw that stuff. But um, it wasn't like they were like a big, um, you know, centerpiece to everything. That said, the idea to me that they haven't had any talk with me seems just like what you say publicly um, for purposes of negotiation or whatever the case may be. I, I have a very hard time believing that. I mean, because they are having talks with him to get him to come, right? You mean to tell me you got this guy flying over from the other side of the world and you didn't try to sit him down to have a conversation about his future fighting in that organization? Yeah, I'm not so sure about that. You know, I don't, I don't, I don't know how much I believe that. But, um, but you know, they're going to say things in the press, and that's fine. I have to play the game. So, so you know, it's a bit of column A, a bit of column B. On the one hand, I agree that they're not – it could just be for some of these guys that they're just there for these promotional purposes. And it's not really tied into the future core plans of the organization. On the other hand, the idea to me that the biggest one of them, Fedor is just coming to, you know, sign autographs next to the ski ball machine and nary the twain shall meet. I'm a little bit skeptical about that. More divisions. Talking about weight cutting, Joe Rogan mentions the jump between weight. Do you think there will be an increase in weight classes? UFC would get more champs for headlining shows. Um, I don't think MMA is at a point where you can really keep adding these weight classes in between ones. The argument that 20 pounds between weight classes is cor- that, that it's too much is correct. 20 pounds between weight classes is too much. The problem is you, we're not the, the, the sport is not big enough to divide the weight classes such that you can make the appropriate spaces in between. So I understand the argument, like this weight cutting forces guys to make drastic choices, um, which is partly why they've been using IVs and all that stuff. I, I, I'm completely with it. I agree with it. It's all true. It's just that from a resource standpoint, you wind up being in, you know, um, you wind up just making your problems a little bit worse by trying to divvy up the talent when you're, when, you know, light heavyweights already thin Heavyweight's thin. Middleweight's hot, but it's not hot past the top 10. Um, and then certainly welterweight on down is, is pretty thick, but you get the idea. And yeah, you can have more belts. But, you know, you just have more champions that people don't want to, you know, aren't invested in. That's not, re- you know, you're not, you're not creating a new belt. And, and the word belt means the same thing as GSP's belt, you know, or... Um, you know, uh, Robbie Lawler's belt it doesn't mean exactly the same thing. Uh, Tam Dan McCrory leaves. I'm going to write this for the third time on UFC.com. Tam Dan McCrory claimed he left a title shot in Bellator to sign with the UFC. Do you believe this is true? And if so, is it surprising considering the Reebok deal and his supposed title shot? Uh, isn't it every fighter's goal to be in the UFC? No, it is not. I can, I can. Uh, Definitely tell you that's not true. Many, of course, most probably, but um, not all. But uh, yeah, I certainly believe that it's true. And um, you know, look, I don't think he was making a ton of money off sponsors in, in Bellator anyway. The guys who was going to be best for are guys who have a bigger name, like Phil Davis, keeping an affliction sponsorship. That to me, that 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 is worth it to him. Guys like Josh Thompson. But you know, Tam Demercory was out of the sport for years. I doubt he was making a tremendous amount. Plus. You know, even if he is, let's say, taking a cut on um, or reduction in, in sponsor pay, right? To him, there's still some value about competing in the UFC relative to Bellator. That's fine. Every fighter is going to have a different sense of priority and um, 
and how that ranks for them. It may just be maybe making less, but I don't have much time competing in this left anyway. I would like to be able to do it at the most elite level, which is the UFC. I would like to test myself as a martial artist. Guys are going to have different priorities about other ones. Other guys are going to say, look, I'm a prize fighter, and I'm a damn good one, but I want to be able to make as much money per fight as possible. I'm going to go to a place that guarantees me that. Um, and, of course, in most cases, that will probably end up being UFC, but you just understand that, like, again, it's the cross-section. I think Demetrius Johnson talked about this, but this is what I said on this chat first. So I don't know if someone told him whatever, but this is my idea and, and my thingy. It's a, it's, it's the cross between martial arts and prize fighting. That's what it is. And so you get a wide range of different priorities intersecting, often contradictory ones, um, that, that define a fighter's outlook and perspective about things he wants. But do I believe that they offered him a title shot? Absolutely. And, and um, some guys are just going to wind up being okay with certain kinds of reductions for other kinds of ads. Uh, Anakin Schaub debating fighter pay. Good question. What did you think of Brendan Schaub and John Anik debate about fighter pay on the excellent Anakin Florian podcast? What do you know about the so-called discretionary bonuses and how relevant are they to the fighter pay debate as a whole in your opinion? Okay. So this is kind of funny to me. So like, uh, first of all, I like all three guys. I like Kenny Florian a lot. Love John Anik. Try to talk to him every time I get a chance to uh, see him at shows. I haven't seen him since the Fairfax show. But... um, He's a great. He's just just the best guy, and he's helped me with some stuff in my career behind the scenes. So I don't have anything negative to say about any of those guys because I believe that they're all making the choices they think are best for their lives. I truly believe that, Brendan Schaub included. But I am very very glad Brendan Schaub is speaking out about this, and he's not even being super awful about it. Like the questions he's asking seem like they're crazy because there's not more guys doing it. So there was basically a lot of things asserted. If you didn't see it, Bloody Elbow has a good recap of it. The long and short of it is that Brendan Schaub asserted from the evidence that he had, admittedly some of it anecdotal, not not a ton, but his general idea was that about 7% of Zufa revenue went to the fighters. Um, Anik had suggested, Florian weighed in with a number, but Anik had suggested it's probably somewhere between 25 and 35%. So what we have here is that best-case scenario, um, and, and again, I'm only going to speak about Brendan Schaub's arguments. I'm only going to speak about John Anik's arguments, Kenny Florian's arguments. I'm not speaking about them as people because as people, I have nothing but nice things to say about all three. Um, I actually called one of Brendan Schaub's fights when he fought at UWC a long time ago. Met him in uh, uh, down there years and years and years ago. Um, but about the arguments, there's a lot. I think there's a lot of problems with John Anik's arguments. A lot of problems. Um, Number one, even if it is 35% at the high end, that's still dramatically lower than uh, than any other league, which is roughly 50, right? So that's one problem. Second problem is I have a very hard time believing it's actually 50%. When, the, for example, the Fox deal, the fighters get none of that. None of that, right? That's That's... that's how many million, let's say, you know, 700 million, something like that, right? And, and, and how much of that do they get? Do they get 350 million spread out on their paychecks? No. So, like, the idea, and that's just one component, the idea that that half of that goes to them, to me, just, or you know, even 35, it just seems to me very much at the high end. I could buy 2025 
you know that to me I feel that seems like a believable argument but okay that's just sort of one side of it the real crux of the issue was this issue about bonuses which you bring up and I think John Anik made a couple of points which I can't argue with which are true which is he said there are some guys who aren't champions who are getting you know five hundred thousand dollar million dollar checks um which Kenny Florian said was true and I believe that I absolutely believe that um you know, so maybe, maybe Murray McDonald got taken care of after his fight with Robbie Lawler, you know. Um, and that, you know, without really knowing what the old argument goes, that without really knowing exactly what the the bonus pay is, how do you reasonably make a, a judgment about what fighter pay is? So this is these, these things are true. It, 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 it seems to me inarguable and totally true that there are guys getting big checks, sometimes non-champions, um, for fat, you know, valor or whatever the case may be inside the octagon. Um, that to me seems absolutely true. And then it also seems true that if we don't really understand what that is, you know, doesn't that limit us in making judgments about fighter pay? I think to some extent that's true. Although of course we can see the general, we can see that, um, there are other portions we can look at where, you know, NBA salaries just skyrocketed because of this new TV deal. We're talking about a giant chunk of money that we know is not being distributed to the fighters that just makes any argument about equity very, very difficult to make, right? So so on the one hand, I agree that it makes, you know, firm conclusions about Zufa pay very difficult to come by, but it doesn't eliminate the arguments. And in fact, it only enhances the questioning about it. Because for me, and I, this is the point I'm at right now, I am not ever going to give them credit for for payments that are intentionally secret if you want to make payments intentionally secret then any credit you get is in is will forever be secret you do not get public credit for things you try to do purposely outside the public purview if you want to do that the benefit to doing that is the secretive nature of it i'm not going to give you some you know nebulous sense of credit for payments, you are, I mean, they're on the books. I mean, they're not, you know, these aren't giant soupfuls of cash, but they're not public. It's not public information. If you want to make it not public, your credit stays not public. I'm only going to credit you for the things we know about. And for the things we know about, there's not a ton of credit to give relative to what the other leagues do. That's sort of the first part about it. The second part about it is the bonus system exists to the benefit of management. That's the whole point about it. Because it makes you, um, first of all, they're secret. Second of all, you just don't know what you're going to get time to time. So you may alter strategy. You may go out and do the things that management wants you to do on, to put, according to their interests to try and secure that bonus. Um, you don't know what other guys are getting because it's randomized every time, or maybe it's none in, in many cases. So you have no idea what other guys are getting because no one really wants to talk about that kind of thing. This is all done to suppress fighter pay generally. This is all done to enhance the leveraging power of management. Defending that, defending it while saying sometimes checks are big, I'm sure checks are sometimes very big. These guys are fight fans. They want to see the um, better athletes taken care of. I'm sure all those things are true, but it's intentionally secretive and it's intentionally done so the next guy can't make any claims on them to make any kind of leverage for himself to secure a better fighter pay. This is not anything defensible if you are all interested in the welfare of fighters. 
just not. It's just not. It's a system designed to not be in their interest. It's a system designed to be in management's interest, which I expect management to do. And I expect fighters, if they want that to change, to do something about it. But that's what that's for. That's, that's, that's the power scheme there of what's happening. So you don't get public credit for private things, and it's a system designed to, to enhance the leveraging power of management over talent. Um, I can't reasonably defend that. And frankly, I just want to make a point about this generally because people are like, oh, you're super pro fighter. I'm only super pro fighter in this environment where this where the balance is so inequitable. But if I could be just totally honest for a moment, I would really love for there to be a fighters association that took care of collective bargaining agreements, that took care of all this stuff, so I can stop talking about it. I am tired of talking about it. I'm so beyond tired of talking about it. And, and, and if the new Reebok deal comes out and it's inequitable to the fighters, you know what I can say? Sorry, fighters. It's, you have a union. Your fault. I don't care anymore. Not, not, not my issue. I would really, 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 really like to be able to say that and to talk about fights and to talk about other things. It actually kills me that everyone's like, well, you're a super pro fighter. Well, you have to be. Look how inequitable things are. Put it on a level playing field, and then I can step away. That's y'all's argument. That's that's an argument that has to be hashed out between talent and management. I'm no longer, you know, my opinion about who got the better end of the deal is like, well, I don't know. You guys are a pretty equal footing. If you got a bad deal, do a better job next time, you know? Almost like, almost like you watch a fight generally. Well, some guy lost. Well, it sucks, you know, but what can I say? It's not my fault. Not my job to go in there and, like, lobby for you to get the thing overturned or something. Um. I would really love to be able to stop talking about it, truly. But as it stands, things are just so, so inequitable in terms of who has the power to to manage the purse strings and leverage the other people to to make concessions. Right? It's just one, It's just really one way one way street, or mostly one way street anyway. So there you go. That's sort of my take on the whole thing. Is that I think that you know. Um, I think that Kenny Florian and John Anik, I think they believe in UFC corporate governance. I truly believe that. I think they think that they want to do right by the fighters. And I to, I also think that, like, Zufa doesn't want this discontent on their hands. But I also just think, generally speaking, in any company, in any line of work, from the tech sector to journalism to um, fight business to whatever, the only way to really get management to concede to employment demands is by force of will it's just how the world works people just are not you know typically speaking they're just not that amenable to other people's you know wills and changes and wants you got to force them you got to get down there and you got to make them make deals and you got to make them make deals on an equal footing and until you can do that the whole system you know just seems like it's uh, you know the, the the system itself was created by management what would you expect it to be except pro management it wasn't created together. It was created by one. So it's naturally going to mostly benefit one. And that's just the way it is. And I understand why they did that. Because that's what management's going to do. Especially if no one checks them. But that doesn't mean I have to go along and say, well, you know, oh, you give out big bonus checks. Oh, okay, well, you know, forget it. I'm not going to make any more points about fighter pay. It doesn't, it doesn't work that way. You make them that way on purpose to benefit yourself, which I understand. But you don't get credit for it. You know, you, you and, and especially if you're interested in like 
fighters being able to, to, to make informed choices. And someone else, I think in the bloody elbow comments, one last point about this, they were saying, you know, how do you run a fight camp like this where you might get a bonus check for 30 grand one time, nothing another time, and then a hundred grand your third time. Like, how do you really manage your life that way when your finances are so uncertain, right? And in the boxing model, you don't have show and win money. You just have show money. And I'm not saying that their system is perfect. Maybe some kind of marriage between the two is the best. I'm just pointing out about how much non-guaranteed money there is and how many breadcrumbs you have to follow. This is not done because it's in the interests of the fighters. That's in the interests of management. They're the ones that set that system up to begin with. Well, why they set it up. Yes, guys can be rewarded if all those things are met, but it essentially is a system that's to their benefit. Well, there's a big discussion in the comments here about it. Someone says, uh, Guillermo Rigondeaux and Vasily Lomachenko want to fight one another. How amazing a match would that be? Talking about two of the greatest amateur boxers ever, ever uh, competing. If they could make the weight work, that would be kind of awesome. Um, okay. Pregnant girl winning MMA title. What are your thoughts on... Uh, Novaish, however you pronounce her proper, her her last name properly, fighting in and winning an MMA title in Brazil when she was 12 weeks pregnant. Uh, So I made a point on Twitter, which everyone seemed to misunderstand. I, I, uh, Guillermo Cruz reported this story and I sort of retweeted it and put a quote on top being like cab MMA on top of their game. And everyone was like, well, cab MMA is not involved. And I'm like, right, precisely. That's precisely my point. If my understanding is if you don't pay them for the oversight, they just don't do the oversight. So, you know, <laughs> regulation in Brazil has quite a ways to go. Um, I'm not sure exactly what the answer is in terms of how, you know, local municipalities could get involved to stop this kind of thing, because this is truly um, a danger to, to people, the lives of people and the lives of, you know, um, you know, to what extent you want, I don't want you know, the lives of the unborn in this particular case. Um, Seems to me like if you're at all pregnant, I mean, one day pregnant, you do not need to be fighting, period. And you should know that, you know. Uh, But that's my point was that, like, it's not that CAB MMA regulated this. My point is that CAB MMA's, you know, grip on regulation is so tenuous that this kind of thing actually happened and they were essentially powerless to stop it. Right. Paige Van Zant. Okay, this is a great question. I'm glad you asked this. One second here. Paige Van Zant. Do you feel like the UFC is trying to keep Paige Van Zant safe in the sense of not wanting her to be facing anyone they feel she may lose to? Because to me, her fighting Alex Chambers after beating Herrig is a step back. Boy, lots of misspelled names in this one. She's gone from beating a ranked opponent to facing someone who isn't ranked when Paige is apparently the seventh best woman in the division. Surely she should be facing someone above her in the ranking. So there's lots of problems with this question. Okay, I understand why you're asking it, so I'm not mad at you. But there's so many problems with this. I mean, it's like, okay, uh, what's the first problem with this? It's a little bit sexist, the question. And the reason why I ask that is, or say that is because um, there are numerous occasions 
of guys being ranked one way and then taking a fight for any number of reasons with someone far below them to either stay busy or to get money or because that was all that was available or whatever the case may be. Singling out Paige Van Zant for this seems deeply unfair. It is totally common for this to happen. It's not the most usual thing. It's not the preferred practice, but it's not at all uncommon. Secondly, let's give the UFC a little bit of credit. Not the biggest. I don't agree with their ideas on fighter pay so much, but I, I will give them credit where it's due, and they deserve it here. These are not people that protect their champions. This is just not an organization that does it very much. Yes, McGregor got a little bit of a meandering road, to the top, but that's all over now. There's nowhere left to hide. And I mentioned that before. He is going to, the day of reckoning, one way or the other, will come for him. And he, how he answers that is up to him. You know, maybe he answers it with flying colors, or maybe he doesn't. You all have your own opinions about it. But, you know, the idea that he can just avoid wrestlers from now on is just, it's over. It's completely over. And again, I'm not going to rehash the debate about what happened in the fight with Chad Mendes, but you get the idea. Eventually, he's going to have to fight guys like a Ricardo Lamas, I suspect, maybe, um, or who, who knows. But, but, like, he's not – there's no more easy fights, none. There's no more fights where it's like this one works or that one works, especially if he wins that title, right? So um, these are just not guys who – the UFC really does, for the most part, a pretty commendable job about fighting – or I should say finding contenders to face champions who are the most worthy, the most deserving, or certainly very difficult. Not all cases, not all weight classes, not all the time. Not saying that. But their record generally – it's pretty strong. It's pretty strong. Um, now, she's not in title contention, but I mean, that philosophy bleeds down. They're not giving her an easy path for, for the reasons that you mentioned. Moreover, let's say, let's say that that's, that is what this is. Let's say that they're, they're just giving her an easy fight. Not so much that, you know, or let's say they are giving her an easy fight just because they, they want her to look good. I really don't have a problem with that. <laughs> let's just say that out fact. I, I don't know if that's the reason why they're doing that. But I don't have a problem with that if that is what they're doing at all, at all. Because, again, eventually they're going to find a spot for her or she's going to work her way to the top, and this will go not very far. Second of all, I'm, I don't think she needs a tune-up fight exactly. A tune-up fight is something that you get when there's been a layoff or an injury or some kind of return from absence. That's not what we have here. But what we do have here is somebody whose skill set is still developing. So why not give her somebody who can – um, you know, push her just enough where she can flash her skills and get some more experience and then eventually take that on to the bigger and better heights. You know, the idea that she should be fighting, you know, oh, she's one or two fights away, or let's, let's just say that they gave her someone above her and that she wins that one. Oh, now she has to fight you and Jacek. Yo, she's not ready for that yet. She's just not. So she can beat some of these tough people, but maybe it's like if you pump the brakes a little bit and massage the situation a little bit, you can, um, you can, you know, it's like with Conor McGregor, they knew his wrestling wasn't great, but they also knew that if you just gave him a little bit of time, if you just gave him some, a chance, he could maybe get to a point where he could really do something special with his other skills and then bring that one up to, up to speed. And I think so far, that theory has proved true. And eventually you have to, you know, you, the day of reckoning comes. The day of reckoning will come for her too. So, so really, I don't understand what the question is here. It's like, she could take this fight for any number of reasons because she wants to stay active because that's all that's available because they have other plans with other people. And that's really all the way it works. And I'd be fine with that. Or it could be the opposite where they want to give her a little bit of chance to let her, her skills develop and breathe and get her career, get some exposure and then move her on to bigger and better challenges. I'd be okay with either of those in either case. I don't understand what the problem is.
you know, if they're just protecting her, you know, for the sake of we're never going to give her a tough fight. Well, okay. That would be problematic. But like the general, like if you just look at what Zufa does normally, they give people tough fights. Like people have tough fights in the UFC all the time. They have too many tough fights. That's really the issue. How about this Cain Velasquez situation? I said on the MMA beat last week, we're in this because they don't give people tune-up fights. If you don't get a tune-up fight before a world title fight after being off 20 months, then what circumstance will you get one? It's crazy. It's crazy. Like, if that doesn't... I mean, you get a tune-up fight in boxing for much less. Well, boxing titles don't mean the same things. I'm not saying that they do, but here we have in this situation where a guy in the market they're trying to develop looked terrible because he was so unprepared for it and unprepared in a way where you can't really get prepared for that the only way to get prepared for that is to have some fights before that but you won't let him do that so he can't it's like you can train to the nth degree you can't actually do the kind of training training necessary to be ready for that circumstance because that circumstance requires tune-up fights so you know if you're okay with no tune-up fights i mean i guess you know but to me it seems like this is a solvable problem. Just have to open your imagination a little bit about what's possible and not be so rigid about the sanctity of, you know, what these belts do or don't mean. Um, and they do mean a lot, of course, but, you know, the world turns, man. People people lose not, you know, he wouldn't even lose anyway, but you get the idea. Um, so to me, I have really no issue with the Chambers of Page Van Zandt fight, not at all. If they keep doing this, well, that's one thing. But, you know, when they were doing this for Roger Huerta, everyone was, yay, Roger Huerta. They do it for Paige Van Zandt, and all, all of a sudden, it's a scandal. Uh, meta more-ish or less. See what you did there. Last Saturday night, the Eddie Bravo Invitational put on an exciting show, and on Friday, Metamorphs debuted the Underground Pay-Per-View Service. Which did you enjoy best? Did you watch both? So I did not watch both. I intend to watch. Um, um, I intend to watch the Eddie Bravo Invitational either today or tomorrow, time permitting, and then uh, um, I watched the Metamorphs Underground. Uh, I thought it was great. If I'm being honest. Thought it was great. There was the 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 production was so much like the it was just so much better. The last Metamora show was a disaster, straight up unmitigated disaster. They were literally showing training footage between fights, like a Keenan Cornelius seminar or like a Josh Barnett Barnett one on one with Halleck. It, the pace was so bad. The matchups were good for the most part, at least on paper. You know, some work out, some don't. But, like, the way it was just produced, and then, the, you know, the commentary was all over the place, and it was a mess. It was a total mess, okay? Um, hey, buddy. Here, come here. You got a bath. Um, it was a mess. This one, they had, it was Jeff Glover, and I forget the other guy's name. He makes these, like, um, he makes these technique videos where he goes over them with a pen and shows you things that happen in, like, BJJ tournaments. Good guy. I forget his name seen a bunch of his videos. But in any case, uh, I'm not the biggest fan of Jeff Glover's commentary, but neither here nor there. The fights would go on, the matches would go on, they would end, and then it would just go right next to the next one. There would be a very, very little setup in between, right? 
Um, and so you had that. So it was just quicker, more streamlined process. Then the matches wound up being really great. There were a lot of finishes, um, a lot of different style contrasts. The main event was Carl Parisian versus AJ Agazarm, which ended up being great. It ended up being really, really good. Uh, Carl almost caught him in an armbar at one point, although the match was basically, I'm not saying it dominated, but, you know, had a, if there were judges, you know, Agazarm would have won. But, um, but yeah, it was like competitive. I have to say, these these the MMA guys in these rules formats, I kind of like. And the when it when it works, it works great because they can find a way to get back to their feet and stuff takedowns. They don't pull guard, so it forces the jiu-jitsu guys to play underneath. I don't care how good your guard is. Guard to me typically is not a 50-50 position. I know it is in MMA, but I I think that that rule should change. And I you know how much I love jiu-jitsu, but jiu-jitsu exists both ways. It exists top and bottom, and so you're forced. Agazarm was able to get on top because he has a wrestling background, but he also pulled a little bit too um, because Carl's takedown defense, as you can imagine, after all those years in MMA, plus with his judo, it's pretty dang good. So those are some crazy scrambles, a lot of Kimura setups, a lot of reversals, um, some back takes. It got testy there. Uh, Carl got pushed off the mat. Um, there was, after he attempted the submission, like uh, Carl did on the, it was like a counter of an armbar to an armbar, basically. You know, Agazarm comes on top and then does the Dikembe Mutombo finger wag. It was cool, man. It was actually wound up being maybe one of their better shows because the last pay-per-view show before this one, uh, you know, internet pay-per-view was a mess, was a mess. Uh, as for EBI, I've heard a lot of good things. Um, supposed to be talking to Eddie Cummins this, this week. Um, so we'll see. We'll see. But the next big one, I'll be covering it with, uh, with old Guy Cruz. I'm not going to be in Brazil. He is. But ADCC is not this weekend. It's the next one, um, which is kind of crazy since, like, Agazarm and, um, you know, well, Meow was supposed to be in it, but he's not anymore. Um, I don't know if Eddie Cummins is in or not, but certainly Gary Tonin is. But anyway, ADCC is next week. Can you believe that? It's finally back. What's up, man? All right. You can't even see him. There he is. Barbus. All right, who wins now? Junior Dos Santos or Fabrizio Verdum? I'm going to take Fabrizio, but this artwork you have here is phenomenal. Um, let's see. Who you got, Cotto or Canelo? If you've got Cotto, if you've got Cotto, you're a braver man than me. I don't see how, uh, I don't see how he beats Canelo, but you know what? Puerto Rican versus Mexican rivalries are the best. I love them. Uh, the crowd gets amped for him the last big one was Cotto margarito well, that's a big one for me anyway um yeah i'm excited i don't know if i'm covering that fight or not though uh shane mosley and female boxing embarrassment shane mosley has said it's an embarrassment to boxing that ufc and mma show more respect to their women fighters than the boxing world does, and it's about time we caught up. You know what's funny about this? That sounds like good lip service, um, but I don't think it's, had, it's got anything to do with respect. I cannot quite put my finger on it. Obviously, I have some theories about it and a couple of ideas, but I don't have anything firm to point to other than a hunch. But women's MMA is a lot more entertaining than women's boxing. That's my opinion. That's not a fact. But my general sense about the world is that 
I feel like MMA allows women to display recognizable signs, entertaining methods of, of physical dominance in a way that boxing does not. I, I don't know if this is true. I'm only making a claim about a hunch that I feel, but that's sort of how I see it. Um, that's just that's just a guess. So to me, it's not like, you know, this was a UFC was run by a guy who said there would never be women there, but and Rousey should have changed that before, and Carano couldn't. Okay, so it's not like this overwhelming thing. It may just be that you know Rousey in particular sort of has this appeal, but I generally feel like MMA fans just aren't resistant to mixed cards, you know, in the same way that I think boxing audiences might be. Um, I could be wrong about that. So in the last Olympics, there were some breakout stars, one of which was a female boxer. But um, I just think generally speaking, I just feel like, uh, and I'm not one of these guys like, well, oh, MMA is better than boxing. I like them both for what they are. But I do feel like when it comes to the women's side of the game, their game is just more dynamic than their game in boxing. It just is for me. So. Ground game. A couple weeks back, I was listening to the fight companion with Joe Rogan, Andy Bravo, Brian Callen, and ben- Brendan Schaub. On that show, Eddie Bravo said that Jake Shields was the best passer he's ever seen in the UFC. What do you think about that statement? Who do you think is the best? Um, boy, if Shields isn't there, he's he's up there. If he's not the guy, he's right next to him. Uh, GSP was a decent passer. Demian Maia might be the best passer. Um, Jacques Array is a sick passer, man. Remember that pass he had in the last fight against um, Kamozi where he walked on the wall? I mean, that's not like, you know, ultra-technical passing. It's more like just him being a physical a freak who understands jujitsu really well, but um, certainly Shields is up there. And the best thing about Shields is like jujitsu is it's very conventional. Just a lot of knee slice passes, really. Totally, that's his favorite thing to do. Gabs a couple underhooks and it just does the you know instep to knee to knee slice pass. Nothing, nothing too, nothing like Jacques Array walking on a wall or nothing, you know. But um, pretty damn effective. But like, and he breaks you down too. Remember he remember at first he. Uh, it was pretty even with Roberto Satoshi at Metamoros, and then what happened? Passed his guard and got to mount on him. So, like, he's nasty, man. Jake Shields is nasty. Um, Nick Diaz hearing, Luke, even postponed to September, shouldn't the NSAC use the same criteria they used with Anderson for Diaz's hearing? Since both guys were caught in the same event, it makes sense to apply the same rules. Yeah, it'll be under that general rubric of rules, but the problem is uh, this he's the third-time offender. And they have crazy ideas about, you know, marijuana use and marijuana um, policing. So he's he's done for, man. He's done. I don't know what they're going to do, but it's not going to be good. It's going to be really, really bad. Rate the UFC 192 card. Uh, how would you rate it? Cormier Gustafson, Hendricks Woodley, Bader Evans. Jessica I versus Juliana Pena, and then run it out with Benavidez versus Bega Utinov. It's a solid B, B+. Plus. Uh, the rest of the card is Nama Yunus versus Hill, Rodriguez versus Dan Hooker, R- Yair, Sean Jordan versus Russell Megamedov, Alan Juban versus uh, Albert Tumanov. That's a sick fight right there. Chris Cariasso versus Sergio Pettis. That's a tough fight for old Serge. And then Anthony Hamilton versus Derek Lewis. I don't really care about that one.
Better September event. UFC 191, which has Dotson Johnson, Arlovsky Mir, Johnson versus Manawa, and Van Zandt versus Chambers, or the Bellator tournament. It's really hard to compare them, you know, because they're so incredibly different. Look, which one has the bigger fighters with the better consequences, the more important consequences? Certainly it's going to be the UFC event. And which one's probably going to do better? Well, only one's on pay-per-view, so it'll do better there by default. But um, they appeal to different things. Bellator, I think their event might end up getting um, a respectable amount of buzz, and I'm covering that one. I'll be, I'll be at that one. But it's just really hard to compare them. They're not they're just so radically different sides of the game. Um, yes, the UFC card has better fighters. Yes, it has um, more relevant matchups for sure. But Bellator Dynamite is not trying to give you the world's most relevant matchups. It is a little bit. Some of the glory fights matter. Um, McGeary versus Ortiz is not irrelevant. Uh, and then the main, the four man tournament has some really high level fighters in it who could do big things in their career by winning. And so it's not exactly that these are just insignificant, you know, preseason NFL games or something like that. It's more than that, but, um, but they're fundamentally not after the same kind of appeal. And so it's a very apples to oranges kind of thing, but you guys know what time it is. It's important contender fights and a championship fight for the UFC for the two best guys in one weight class versus, you know, uh, fun, interesting, sometimes competitive, sometimes meaningful fights that have a bit of just sort of um, uh, rubbernecking feel to them, you know, to, to like a ring in a cage and all this kind of stuff. You know, it's crazy. Oh, let's go to the Twitter machine now that it's 2.15. Uh, for what it's worth, the most passes earned in UFC history, GSP 117, Matt Hughes 76, and then Demian Maia 74. So that was good. Very good job. Uh, yeah, I forgot. Matt Hughes was a good passer too and a good guy taking the back. I forgot about that. Um, all right. Would you agree that the UFC is still in its infancy stage as an entity? Shouldn't the bulk of their money go to infrastructure? No, I would not agree with that at all. Um, true or false, Jimmy Manoa knocks out Rumble Johnson. Certainly possible. I don't see it as the likeliest of outcomes. What do you think of Diego moving down to 145? I don't know, man. I don't know about that cut. He thinks he can do it, and he looks okay, and he can fight fine. Then that's his business. But I'm a little bit – look, I'll say trust but verify with Diego Sanchez. If he can get down there, he can look okay. Okay. If not, though, uh, if Moroz wins big uh, at the weekend, I guess over uh, Valerie Letourneau, should she get the shot or should Joanna be on the shelf for eight months? Yeah, they might have to give it to her. I don't know what they're going to Well, Gedalia next, I guess. Uh, would DJ benefit from stronger main cards under him? Yes, but not enough to, to, to warrant stacking it like that. One says DC statehood. Yeah, of course. Um, they got a bunch of spam questions. Uh, Luke, can fighters still thank sponsors by name in post-fight speeches? I don't know what the rule of that is. So if you guys remember back in the day, 
I remember one time Tim Sylvia goes, <laughs> I forget, maybe he beat Gan McGee or somebody. I forget who he beat, but he, or maybe it was the Monson fight or something. I remember, I remember Tim Sylvia had like a piece of paper and was like, you're going to have to be patient. I got a long spiel coming. First of all, it's spiel, but he's like, I got a long spiel coming. And then, uh, he reads off this list of sponsors. You can't imagine it's so long. It's like, you know, Rick's tire barn, you know, Chevron at the corner of first and main, like just, just the most insignificant. And at some point the UFC was like, okay, you know, I think they, I think there was a while where you couldn't thank sponsors at all. And now I think it got to the point where you could name like maybe one or two, or I don't know, sponsors that also sponsored UFC. I, I, I don't I, I frankly do not know what the rule is right now. But um, some guys do it and some guys don't. I'm not sure how that works. Uh, Brock dissing Dana and Ronda. Well, I didn't think he dissed Ronda. I thought he was actually pretty complimentary of her, right? I mean, I didn't read the article. I saw that he said that it was like a man fighting women, which, you know, if you ever saw, I mean, I don't think that's a crazy thing to say. Um, but the part about Dana, it's like, whatever, man. I, you know, if it's pro wrestling stuff. I'm just tuned out. I don't want really to care what they say. Uh, assuming you've seen the exposing black belt videos, how important do you think it is to the BJJ scene? Not very. I don't think it's a huge problem. There's a bunch of guys all over the world opening up schools that don't deserve to. I think most of the time, actually, it's a lot of guys who are really good who don't get the credit they deserve. That's a bigger problem to me. Always you want to expose frauds and phonies, but I don't think it's some epidemic that is ravaging jujitsu. It's just isolated incidences that, or incidents, I should say, that get, call on camera and then put on line and everyone shares it like, Ooh, F this guy, F this guy, F this guy. Yeah. F this guy, whatever. But it's not, it's not some huge, it's not some huge thing. All right. One second. A few more questions here while we have time. Who do I think will win Bellator's one-night four-man light heavyweight tournament? Um, I'll go with Phil Davis as the easy call. But I, those tournaments, man, they're crazy. I'm asking, at what point is a news story clearly trivial? Come on. Chris Weidman versus John Jones. Who wins and how? Someone was asking me the other day, it's like, if they make this fight, and I'm assuming it'll be a 205, because, you know, there won't be any pressure on John Jones to make 185. Um, I, and I love how people take exception to that. Well, it's different because that work. It's not different. That's what champions do. Guys, that's what champions do. Ronda doesn't have to. She doesn't want to. But that's what happens. You clear it out and you go up. If you think that this argument about why they can't fight is overweight, you are being played. Anyway, Chris Weidman versus John Jones. Who wins and how? Um, well, we'll see what happens with John Jones when he comes back, won't we? Won't we? Assuming it's the guy who left. Uh, I don't think anyone in the world can beat him. I don't think anyone in the world can beat him. So I like John Jones. 
Uh, Cerrone Dos Anjos' first fight. I recently remembered scoring the first fight for Cerrone live, but nobody shared this opinion. Rewatching it, I still scored it very close, particularly the second round. What are your thoughts on the first fight? And I see the rematch being very similar. Uh, dude, Dos Anjos won that handily. And I expect he'll do the same. But what's interesting is um, what's interesting is that uh, they're different fighters now, for, for sure. Dos Anjos is much better stand-up. Uh, Cerrone has, I think, uh, not a hugely better guard, but a much improved guard. Um, but, yeah. Yeah, I, I still like Dos Anjos to win. I just don't feel like... I, again, I don't have any like unifying theory about it, but you see body types like Condit, you see body types like Cerrone, um, body types like Struve. I know he's huge, but I mean that that lankiness, that thin lankiness. There's not a lot of those guys who are really good at wrestling, you know. Um, again, I, I don't have a lot of evidence to support it. It's just what I see. Let's take it for what it's worth. Maybe nothing. Um, and as long as that's the case, man. I just have a hard time. I have a hard time uh, seeing any other outcome besides Dosanjos winning. Soto, I have not yet watched EBI four. However, I checked the results the following day. Was incredibly surprised to see how well Joe Soto did. He competed against Gio Martinez and Miao, defeating them both, which took me by surprise. Is Soto that good at grappling, or was it the right tactical moves that night? So I, uh, I didn't see it. But my understanding is he didn't beat. Martinez and Meow outright. No one could sub each other. And then they did the the EBI game where, you know, you have different positions where I think they take your back and the other person takes your back. And then they do this over and over again for however many series. And then eventually they tally up the time. Whoever was able to escape fastest moves on. Soto was able to escape fastest. Okay. Now I'm told that uh, Meow was caught in a big heel hook. He didn't tap and he got out of it. But that it was that it was pretty nasty. It was, and that's actually he got injured. That's why he's not competing at ADCC. So, so a couple things. Number one, Soto is obviously very very good as a grappler. Number two, um, if you can avoid being sub and then you can win scrambles and then you you know think about it, MMA fighters are really good at scrambling relative to jujitsu players. That is not necess- It's it's surprising. I'm not saying it's not surprising, but it's not crazy surprising to think about that way. We went back and talked about Metamorphs before about MMA. I, Again, sometimes you get these MMA guys versus these these grapplers, and MMA guys are grapplers too. But you know, when you haven't focused in on the way these other guys have, it's automatic disadvantage. But I mentioned before the ability to get to their feet, man, it's really really good, and that's not the same as you know if someone has your back about getting out. But I just mean these MMA fighters in these nogi contexts, they really drill common escapes, and back control is a common position in which you find yourself. And if there's no gloves. Yes, it makes the person choking easier, but also means I can slide my fingers in and get certain places that I couldn't get before that the glove might diminish. So, um, so to me, I am surprised by it. I, I, I was like, he beat me out, really? But when they explained how he beat me out, um, it made a little bit more sense. So I think it's both. Soto's probably underrated as a pure grappler, and also that the rule set and his way of playing the game uh, aided his ability to get to, up to Eddie Cummins, but then Eddie Cummins, you know, did what he did. So, guy's amazing. Um, who's the better striker, McGregor or Dillashaw? They're very, very different kinds of strikers. Dillashaw has much better movement, significantly. Um, 
I mean, just look at how he is just constantly darting in and out of the pocket, changing angles, lowering levels. The the striking diversity is is madness. McGregor is um, uh, a little bit more of a distance striker who who certainly uses angles as well. He likes angles too, but there's a little bit more of a slow fluidity to it all versus the sort of geometrical striking that that Dillashaw has. It's very very different. Um, and Dillashaw, I don't think, works nearly as well at range. Dillashaw works much better in close. I think McGregor works much better outside. Um, McGregor does move. McGregor has excellent footwork, of course, but it's excellent footwork aiding his style. The style that Dillashaw has means that your feet are constantly in motion. Um, so they're just two different kinds. You know, that, the, the question is, who is the more effective striker? Um, and I would give it to Dillashaw only in the following sense. He just and, – and Soto, he got hit – he got hit uh, – an uncomfortable amount, but in the two Burrell fights, he didn't get hit all that much. McGregor's chin, as we mentioned before, is just rock. Okay. But that's not something you want to just live off of. Remember before live beneath your means. So for me, the offensive output of McGregor is phenomenal. I would just like to see some of the defense short up, but we'll see how he goes against Aldo. You know, we're going to figure this out. Let's see how it looks against Aldo. I may rapidly change my opinion. Maybe against Aldo, he strikes against Aldo differently than he striked against Mendez. Maybe he decides against Mendez, I'll just risk taking a couple of shots because I can eat his punches. I don't need to need to move my head, and I can just fight this way. Maybe against Aldo, he's a lot more defensively responsible, and so then we can have a different discussion about this. And so, so for now, you know, because of the defensive responsibilities that Dillashaw takes seriously. I'll lean towards him, but, you know, just the straight-up knuckle game aspect of it, maybe McGregor. Uh, judo nomenclature and MMA commentary. Look, with the exception of the always excellent Kenny Florian, I've always been disappointed and more Ronaldo doesn't get credit for it. I've always been disappointed by a pr- pronounced dearth in judo knowledge within the MMA community. Every throw Ronda hits is either Uchimata, Koshi Garuma, Harai Goshi, or Ouchigari. Um and the coach you guard too, uh, seems to be glossed over as judo hip toss or judo trip. When the vocabulary of every, every other MMA facet of MMA has found its way into the commentary, why does judo lag behind? I don't know. I think it's like it, there's, a, there's a willful cognitive block. Like why does everyone know heel hook and inverted heel hook and toe hold? And these are English words, but then you have things like Kimura, you know, why is a Kimura more known? Um, you know, uh, I'm assuming that the Japanese nature of the commentary of the words makes it difficult. Like, you know, what would they call baseball pitches if they had to give them Japanese names? Would they be breaking ball, split seam, this, that, and the other? No, I don't think so. So a lack of an English word. And these things all, it's all all like major outer reap, major inner reap. So all these things sort of mean. But um, I don't know. I don't know. I think it's partly the Japanese is is a stumbling block, partly people's unwillingness to learn. I think they just sort of see a throw from judo and they're comfortable with that level of specificity. Like, ah, I don't need to know the Japanese name. I can basically see what that is. I think there's a lot of that going on, but it bothers me a little bit. I would like to see a greater emphasis placed on understanding and naming that, which you are looking at. Let's do one more and we shall depart. Is Tito delusional? What a wonderful question to finish on. Listen to Tito say how he's going to give McGeary the worst beating of his life and no one will stop him from winning the title. Has he forgotten that he has barely won a fight in about 10 years, or is he just delusional? I can see him being knocked out in the first round. 
Yeah, well, me too. But is asking if Tito is delusional. Well, sure. Every fighter is delusional. Every single one. Ronda Rousey says she can beat Cain Velasquez. You're going to bet on Cain or you're going to bet on Ronda? My money's on Cain. Right? Or, you know, uh, anything. Fighters are fighters are uniquely delusional. Um, you know, the, the difference is like, fighters are delusional, but they typically, you know, only sort of match their delusion to the, to the contest in front of them. So as they work their way up the system, oh, I'm, I believe I'm the best, but I'm going to prove it against this guy on this on the fight pass prelims, and then on the Fox prelims, and on the main card, and then the title fight, and then title defense. Sort of how the how it goes, but they feel like they're the best no matter what. But they but they but they channel it into the challenge in front of them, which is what Tito has done here. Tito has a title fight in front of him against Liam McGeary. I only bring it up because I take exception to what Robert Griffin III has done, saying I'm the best quarterback in the NFL. I don't care if he thinks. If he wants to believe that, that's fine. Uh, but for me, people are like, well, what is he supposed to think, that I'm not the best quarterback? I actually don't need him to think he's the best quarterback. What I need him to think is that he can win the contest in front of him, like all fighters do. Can you win week in, week out? That's the only thing I care about. And later on, when you've got enough evidence to support a claim, you can, be then, you can then make it. But the only thing I care about confidence is, like, do you, can you win this weekend? Because I actually think that him saying that is actually the reason why he's been uncoachable and only throws sideways passes and wants to run his own playbook and has been absolutely, um, you know, unwilling to put in the kind of work required to to make that offensive system work. So, um, so to me, it's actually a bit of a hindrance in that particular case. But when you're talking about just the task in front of you, I think that it's a much more manageable thing to understand than that in that particular context, almost all every fighter is delusional, basically. All right, we have to go. Um, follow me on Twitter at SBN Luke Thomas. Barbus. Are you sleeping? Um, for Barbus, I'm Luke. My back is killing me, but I sat through a full hour and a half. Um, this will be up on iTunes soon, iTunes.com slash promotional malpractice. Um, Saturday there'll be fights. Excuse me, Sunday there'll be fights. And um yeah, all that good stuff. Email me luke.thomas at espionation.com. And until next time, stay frosty.